Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, family, friends, visitors. Welcome to our first day of the week here at the Long Island Church of Christ. We welcome you, all our guests. You are our honored guests, as we always say, and it's happy to see all of you. Today, uh, we begin the New Testament reading with the Gospel of Luke, a wonderful gospel put together in the most scientific way you can imagine. Luke himself was a physician, and as you read at the beginning of the uh, gospel series, he investigated everything from the beginning to make sure the reader had the most accurate portrayal of all the facts that occurred. So it's a very, very awesome gospel to start with. Uh, I wanted to uh, share this message this afternoon in two parts, kind of covering what happened before Jesus came into the scene. Because when we take a look at the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and then we go to Matthew, we think Matthew is the first book, but it's really Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're all talking about the same incidents, Jesus arriving on the scene. So between that, there's about 400 years of silence. We call that the intertestamental period. Uh, it's a period of transition between two testaments. So this is going to sound a little bit like a history lesson, the first part of the sermon, but I think it's very interesting for us to understand what had happened to Israel, what had happened to the Jewish nation in these 400 years. That's a long time. The United States is not even 400 years old. So this is a long time we're talking about here, kind of like the same length of time that the Jews spent in Egypt before Moses came uh, and brought them out of the Exodus. So there was a lot of political, a lot of religious shifting during this intertestamental time. And I want to review that with you. Uh, when Jesus arrives at the scene, uh, it's not Babylon anymore or the Persians that are in control of the world, but it's the Romans. So we gloss over a period uh, of where Hellenism dominated everything. What's Hellenism? Hellenism is the kind of cultural change that was brought about by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. So this period of time that was very influential in history had occurred. And by the time Romans come into the scene, and we thought that the Romans were very influential, indeed they were, but even the Romans adopted and also expanded this Hellenistic culture. That tells you how influential the Greeks were. Many Jews during that time were endorsing Hellenism but many also strongly opposed these cultural changes. Matter of fact, the Septuagint, which is what we call the Greek Old Testament, was written out of that concern, out of that division, because uh, many Jews had adopted Hellenism and even the language Greek. More and more Jewish children were speaking Greek, more so even than Hebrew. So a group of 70 Hebrew scholars decided that it was important to translate the Old Testament into the Greek to keep alive the Jewish heritage. And matter of fact, by the time Jesus comes into the scene, he and his uh, disciples favored the use of the Septuagint. 
Many times when you read in the New Testament, in the uh, Greek New Testament, uh, you read a, a quote from the Old Testament, and sometimes you compare it. I'm sure you've done that. Well, how come in the Old Testament it looks a little different when I go back and look at that quote than in the New Testament? That's because most of it is quoted from the Septuagint, which is slightly a different translation than the actual Old Testament. The Targums, which are the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic, also had their origins during the captivity of the Jews. So out of this struggle with Hellenism, the two main parties of, Jew of Judaism that we see Jesus struggle with in his time emerged, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because before, when we left Malachi, there were no Pharisees, there were no Sadducees. But now all of a sudden they come into the scene. How did they appear? What it was out of this struggle, out of these oppositions, out of this polarization that Hellenism caused. So I want to kind of discuss all of these changes uh, in, a, in, in various ways here. First, we're going to talk about religious changes that occurred. And there were a few of these. There were some religious parties like the Pharisees. And they struggled how to interpret the law in these new circumstances, in this new life, in this new culture. The Pharisees believed that it was their responsibility to determine how the law was to be applied in daily life. So they used the Torah and tradition to help them determine this. They were very big on tradition. And most of the common people sided with the Pharisees. And they were opposed to Hellenism invading their lifestyle and their culture as Jewish people. And after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, when the Sadducees lost their seat of power, the Pharisees actually continued to become the true leaders of the people. Even the Romans eventually recognized them as the ruling and governing body of the Jews around 135 AD. The Sadducees were a little different. They did not try to adapt God's law, but they limited themselves to just the Torah. They didn't care about tradition. They wanted to just follow the Torah. They didn't even accept the authority of the prophets or the other writings. Uh, but this was an upper class uh, type of people. They were composed mostly of wealthy priests and their aristocracy. And they were considered religiously conservative, but they wielded considerable political power. And they endorsed some aspects of Hellenism for pragmatic purposes. But after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we don't hear of the Sadducees anymore. They lost all that political power and control. We, they kind of disappeared from the scene. These other two are not so much religious parties, but they kind of have a lot of politics mixed in there with them. The Zealots, for example, the Helots, Zealots and the Herodians. Uh, the Zealots were very nationalistic. They were fiercely opposed to Roman occupation, whereas the Herodians, they supported Herod and his dynasty, and thus indirectly the rule of Rome. And we see how the Herodians, in many instances, joined the Pharisees in their opposition to Jesus. They kind of uh, came together to oppose Jesus himself. So those, those were the religious political parties or the religious parties uh, that brought about some changes by the time Jesus comes onto the scene. Let's look at some religious functionaries because we don't see many of these also in the Old Testament, like the scribes, the rabbis. We don't hear be people being called rabbi in the Old Testament. We don't, there were no chief priests 
in the Old Testament. And when do, when do the scribes start to appear? With Ezra. Ezra is the first time we hear about, hey, look at this guy, a scribe. And he kind of like gave a rise to, to this group, to these religious functionaries. The scribes are also known as the teachers of the law. And they were a special class of people who were very skilled in uh, documentation. They were like the secretaries of the day. They knew how to record information. They knew how to write many different languages. And so they were the governmental secretaries, the religious secretaries, the copyists. They were largely responsible for preserving the scriptures and making sure that we have the scriptures that we have today. Ezra was one such scribe that became very influential, even as a priest, because there were, there were no other governing authorities at the time when they came back from the captivity. And so Ezra kind of rises to power as, as one of those chiefs. Uh, he held, he kind of led a new wave of scribes and becoming interpreters and teachers of the law, just as we read in the book of Ezra. They kind of took the place of the prophets during this intertestamental period. And in their zeal to protect the law from Hellenistic influence, unfortunately, they started to add many interpretations to the Torah uh, to prevent, kind of to help uh, not get their law perverted by all these Hellenistic influences. So it was uh, maybe a, a, a good thing that they tried to do, but it didn't result in something good because now they had layers of different kinds of interpretations for the people. And Jesus continuously pointed out to them and the Pharisees that they had lost the spirit of the law in their effort to keep the letter of the law. So they traded one for the other. The rabbis is, was a general term of respect. That word rabbi, it can mean teacher, it can mean Lord, it can mean master. And so many of the teachers of the law, especially those belonging to the Pharisees, they were very desirous to be called this title since it meant that they were very influential. So it was a coveted title to have, rabbi, that title. We see Jesus being called that frequently and the Pharisees and Sadducees were jealous that they recognized Jesus as a rabbi even though they, he didn't formally went to the same schooling that he did. And then we come to the chief priests, which we hear so often about in the New Testament. And they were composed of past and present influential priests. They were probably members of Jewish aristocracy, probably composed mostly of Sadducees that were very wealthy and had a lot of political power. And they eventually ended up being the ruling body of the Sanhedrin, which we hear about a lot in the New Testament. That's the court where they took Jesus to. Uh, that was like their... Uh, their political body at the time, the Sanhedrin, and so the ruling body of the Jews. So those were some religious functionary changes. Now let's look at some religious institution changes during this 400-year period. We know the temple, right? The temple was always central to, to the Jews. I mean, it was where all the sacrifices took place. It was where, where all the Jewish uh, celebrations and and laws and sacrificial laws that they were all centered around the, the temple. So in the times when the temple wasn't there, when they were in captivity in Babylon and later in, in, uh, in the Persian Empire, they kind of like had that identity removed, like our brother Steve was talking about. They were like, okay, where are we? Our temple is gone. What do we do now? Uh, their, their center of life was taken away. But in the midst of that, something else was born during that time, and that is 
the synagogue, the institution of the synagogue, was born during this time of captivity. It was actually invented during the Babylonian exile in the absence of the temple where the Jews would come together. They would read, they would study the, the Hebrew scriptures led by Ezra and others like him. And so they would gather and these meetings were later formalized into the institution of the synagogue. It wasn't a place to sacrifice animals or anything like that. Its focus was just on teaching. And of course, uh, the Sanhedrin arose out of the aristocratic council of the elders presided by the high priest and the Sadducees at a time when Palestine was somewhat self-governing during the rule of the Hellenistic kings. And then when, the, when Rome comes in, uh, we know how Rome was during that time. They kind of let each region govern themselves, even though Rome had the total rule. So during Jesus' time, the Sanhedrin was still very much in charge of everything. That's why when Jesus was arrested, where is he first taken? He's first taken to the Sanhedrin, to the ruling body of the Jews. Then they send him to Pilate. Then they send him to Herod. And he kind of goes in between those three at the time. However, uh, by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, this body of the Sanhedrin uh, disappears. It's not known anymore. And then, of course, we have the temple. And the temple was a different temple. By the time Jesus was there, it was being reconstructed. It was being expanded, uh, this temple. It was something magnificent to, to look at. It was almost double the size of Solomon's temple by that time. It was a magnificent structure that Herod the Great, uh, he kind of did that to gain the favor of the Jews at a time for political uh, power. So it is in the midst of all these changes that the Messiah now comes into the scene. In the midst of a world that was so ready, embracing new ways, new cultures, Hellenism, oh, you know, embracing all this new stuff, thinking that it's progressive. Oh, we're so progressive. You know, we're so great. Look at us governing ourselves, building all these great institutions. Uh, it's in the middle of all that, that God breaks through to make sure that the faithful are not led astray by man's thinking, by man's wisdom, which we know eventually comes to nothing. And, and that that mirrors sometimes how our own lives go, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes we're on the verge of making decisions in our life uh, and we tend to be led more by what we see, by what we hear. As Steve was saying, there's a great pressure coming uh, from our social circle, circles, from social media, from political power. And sometimes we get caught up in all that and we start making decisions for our future, thinking that we're going to go somewhere thinking that we're advancing, that we're progressing. And then all of a sudden God comes in and turns it around. I know that was my experience. You know, I was thinking, I thought I was on my way to, to going somewhere. And then all of a sudden God came near and my life turned around completely. And so that's what's going to happen here. When Jesus comes into the scene, Hellenism was trying hard. The devil was trying hard to use Hellenism and all these other pressures to stamp the truth away from mankind, to stamp the memory of all that God had done in Israel. He was trying to do it, but it didn't happen. <laughs> God comes near. He makes a personal appearance this time. 
Amidst the political chaos, amidst Rome, the strong empire of Rome that nobody could conquer, that's when God decides to come. He comes in the middle of all this religious and political polarization, particularly in Palestine. It was a hotbed of zealots and rebels and all kinds of things. Poor Pontius Pilate, and if you read uh, uh, The Antiquity of the Jews by Flavius Josephus, no Roman person ever wanted to be in charge of the area of Palestine where Pontius Pilate was told to go. It was like, ah, oh, I don't, that's the last place they would want to go because it was just a hotbed of political rebelliousness. Uh, kind of like Mose Eisley, right, in Star Wars. <laughs> so amidst all this fragmentation and all this cultural and intellectual domination from the Greeks, that's when the Messiah comes. Who do you think would want to listen to him? Who do you think would pay attention to God's Messiah, to God's messenger, in the middle of all this stuff and all this newness, all these new ideas? Who was going to listen to Jesus when people thought that they were enlightened by Hellenism? When people thought, oh man, we already have a lot of gods. Look at all the temples that we have. Well, not only do we have Greek gods, but we also have Roman gods. The Romans kind of copied the Greeks. They just gave them different names. Who was going to listen? Among those who had all these patriotic ideas about their religion and how to advance their own cause, who was going to listen? But you know what? God loves a challenge. <laughs> God made the earth out of nothing. Out of all the chaos, he brings order. God specializes in bringing order out of chaos. This order stresses us out. Chaos stresses us out. But God loves that challenge. And there's nothing more than he likes to do to bring order in the midst of chaos. And that's precisely what the Gospels show. And this is the historical significance of the appearance of God in the flesh. It changed, it tossed about all these things to the wayside. When Jesus brings in the kingdom, it wrecked all of this human ideology, all the human politics and religion. It wrecked it. It turned it aside into rubble, just like we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Isn't that what the dream meant? The height of man with the kingdom of gold and then silver and then bronze. All of a sudden, when the kingdom of God comes on the scene, that rock uncut from human hands comes and destroys everything to pieces. And we haven't heard from that since, have we? Like I said, by 70 AD, most of these things disappeared and they were gone, even the Roman Empire. No one follows or holds to these religions that I've been mentioning here or these institutions anymore. They were gone. Nowadays, we have our different set of challenges we have our own set of ideas in this generation, our own set of wisdom, religion, that is constantly challenging the Messiah, the, the Messiah's message. But God's kingdom has not been overthrown. It's been here long before the United States, <laughs> long before, it's been 2,000 years already. And most of those other institutions, 
have been long gone, but the kingdom of God is still here. It has not been overthrown. And according to Jesus, it will be here to welcome him coming again. As he said, the gates of Hades, Hades shall not overcome it. You see, when God becomes flesh, when God decided to come into our midst in the flesh, it was some kind of encounter. It was 1600 years after Moses that another man all of a sudden takes up this theme. There was a difference. Moses begged God to show him his face. I want to see you, he says to God. John didn't beg, but instead he thanked God for having seen his face. Moses was told that he couldn't see it, but the apostles declared the message, we have seen him. And this is what we declare to you. This encounter, whereas for Moses it happened while he was shepherding his sheep, he saw this bush, he went out to investigate it. That encounter was full of mystery. Who are you? I am God, you know, go and free my people. For John, it happened quite differently, much more personal. It happened, it didn't happen on a mountaintop. It happened in a fishing boat. There were no clouds, no fire, nothing unusual present. Only lots of net, nets, smell of fish. It wasn't dramatic. It wasn't a burning bush calling out to, to Moses. It was just a man who asked him to leave his, leave his business behind and become his disciple. And John had no idea what he was stepping into when he stepped into that boat. How long did it take John to awaken to the fact that this was God in the flesh? Somewhere maybe between that call at the beginning and the crucifixion, somewhere between those three years, perhaps he awakened to that idea. He began to realize this is not an ordinary man. This is not just another prophet. This was not just a good man. He's not just a good preacher. This is the embodiment of God. Like Peter himself confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's read what he says here. John starts out kind of like Genesis. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through, through him, all things were made. Notice how the focus in the Old Testament, it was God made everything. But now John is saying, no, it is Jesus. Jesus is God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. He also says, a few verses down, the word became flesh. That word that was with God in the beginning became flesh, made his dwelling among us. He made a personal appearance. The glory, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now notice what he says here in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. So what was impossible for Moses and at the times of the prophet 
Now it was possible, but the one and only son who is himself God and is the closest relationship with the father has made him known. That word there or that phrase made him known in the Greek is exegeomai, which in English is exegesis, which is to make known. Jesus is the exegesis. That's a nice word play in English, right? Jesus is the exegesis of God. He is the one that makes God known. So this was some different encounter than any others in the historical past. Now God wanted to make himself known to all the people, wanted to present himself in the flesh. And these 12 men were so blessed to have been chosen to experience something like that. John later on writes, as he's an older man now, in 1 John 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, that which was from the beginning, he always focuses on the beginning, which we have heard. Now notice the highlighted words here. Which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched. What is John trying to do here? John is trying to say, look, what was forbidden to us before, this is what was made known to us. This is the kind of encounter we had. It was a much more superior, much more intimate encounter than Moses and all the prophets. This is what we declare to you, as it says here at the end of verse 1. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Life appeared. We have seen and testified to it. We proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim. How many times he's saying proclaim? That was their job as apostles, to proclaim, to tell, to tell what they heard, to tell what they saw, to tell of what they touched. He says, we didn't make this up. We couldn't have. We weren't looking for this. But he manifested himself. And we need to tell you. Why? Verse 3. So that you may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. He gave us that fellowship. We want you to have fellowship too. So that's why we're telling you this. And isn't that our message now as disciples of Christ? To proclaim, to proclaim this message, to tell the world this really happened. And we have the message of the apostles to share with you of what they heard, what they saw, what they touched. It is, it is real. And now for us, it has become something more than that. Because as Jesus said, blessed are those who have seen and heard, but more blessed are you who believe without seeing or hearing or touching. So if anything, if you think that, oh man, they were so blessed to have handled Jesus, Jesus doesn't want us to think that way. Because faith is more real than that. And so we are most blessed a most blessed generation because of this message, because this message was given. It was not just these people's interpretation of what happened. As we read through the Gospels in the next few weeks, we're going to start with Luke, starting with Luke this week, and then we're going to read Matthew, Mark, John, not, not all in order, because they're going to be kind of peppered in through our New Testament reading. But focus in on their testimony. This is what they heard, 
what they saw, what they touched, and they are not trying to add any interpretations to it because they want to present the message so that it affects us the same way it affected them. Just like Peter says that, you know, prophets didn't, you know, take these words and make the words of the Holy Spirit their own. No, uh, these prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the words that we have in the New Testament are the words of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, using these men as the eyewitnesses for these things that happen in their day. And we don't just have, we have them as the primary eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you're a good history student, you will read, you can read many other documentations from Romans, from Greeks, from uh, Jews of the life of Jesus. And even though a lot of what they say are uh, not as graceful as what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, because they wrote with a lot of jealousy and sometimes with a lot of hatred, but that becomes even more powerful because they become hostile witnesses to what happened. And in a court of law, a hostile witness is worth more than a friendly one <laughs> because these people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, some, uh, some of Rome's officials, they, had, they wouldn't gain anything from proclaiming the truth about this man and much less proclaiming the fact that he did all these miracles and that he was raised from the dead. What would they have to gain? Their enemies. Yet their testimony becomes invaluable to us in this day and age to show credence to what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and others wrote about the Messiah. This was not a nice story. This is not a myth. This is the truth, the light of mankind that made himself known, and they are witnesses of these things. Look at what Jesus says here. You do not know me or my father. Now, this is Jesus talking to people in his generation, in his culture, that should have known the father, that should have known God like Moses knew, like Abraham knew. They knew very little of God, but their faith made them know God and have an intimate relationship with God. Yet when Jesus is addressing his generation, he tells them, you don't know me. You don't know the Father. If you knew me, you would also know the Father. And in reverse, if they would have known the Father, they would have accepted him, Jesus would say, in other parts of the gospel. But this was the problem. This was the challenge that the Messiah had at that time. Jesus became flesh. He reveals the Father to us, this carpenter, this young man, appearing, becoming the center of attention through his actions, through his character, giving the apostles, giving the Pharisees, giving all these people a challenge, moving their cheese, their religious cheese, so to speak, hearing Jesus say things like this, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Think about how a Jew would have taken that message. When they're all that they could see with this young guy, quite bold, you know, saying these things. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Then again, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the first time they had heard somebody talk about God as their father. To a generation of people who constantly said, as Steve pointed out in John chapter 8, that Abraham was their father. And here Jesus is saying, before Abraham was born, I am. Whoa, you know, what a shocking thing to say. No wonder they wanted to stone him right then and there. Jesus came causing a lot of controversy. Certainly his generation had made the law its own God instead of God. And that was the problem. This is the message of Christ, letting the Father be known. Letting us know that if we looked at Jesus, if we can see Jesus, if we can imagine Jesus, that is the Father, that is God. And that's who he wants to make known. He is that light. No wonder Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, God said, let light shine out of darkness. That's a reference to the Old Testament act of creation. Let, when God says, let there be light, and the light dominated darkness. But now he applies that. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So all the darkness that was attempting to corrupt the world with the Hellenistic culture and the political influence and all the religious changes that were trying to be wrought upon mankind to eradicate that light. All of a sudden, now that light was gonna shine brighter than ever and no one was ever gonna be able to stamp it out. And that was God's goal. That is God's goal. And now that light is in us. So it's a light that continues to advance as we share this message of the gospel. As we share the testimony, the testimony of the apostles, what they heard, what they saw, what they touched, that light continues on shining in the church through you. As you carry the message, it's a light that continues to shine. It is displayed in us. The face of Christ. Paul also talks about the aroma of Christ. There is an essence that we give about just because now we're kingdom citizens. And as we work, as we live, as we go about, that's what we do. We keep shining that light that is not going to be extinguished. Man was made to be like God. God created man and woman in his image. And when we read through Genesis, Genesis 1.26, let us, that's uh, the Godhead, Elohim, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us, Make mankind in our image, in our likeness. 127, God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. So from the beginning, we were to carry that image of God in this creation. The influence of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the message of God in, the, in our very way. That was our identity. The identity God gave us, as Steve said in his lesson. But mankind... <laughs> suffers from a big ego and we tend to love trash more than truth right uh, we always go for the cheetos for the chips instead of the fruits right i mean think about that <laughs> we always go for the donuts and the burgers instead of the salad uh, it's just wired into us we go for the fruit of knowledge of good and evil instead of the fruit of the tree of life. How sad. 
How sad is that? And so God creates us in his image, but we're not satisfied. We want to create our own image, but something happens when we do decide to do that. We stop shining. What we do when we take off that image or when we decide not to follow that image is now we support the chaos in the world. We support the forces of darkness in the world. That's what happens. And so we pervert that image. And with the coming of sin, the image of God is perverted. And that it didn't take long for that to happen after creation, did it? Man forgets who he is. We talk about being human. We use that word, oh, that is so inhuman. That is so human. That becomes the phrase for many memes in this generation. But the truth is, do we really know what human is supposed to be? We're trying to redefine it even as we speak. We're trying to even redefine, we try to redefine gender. We try to redefine marriage. We try to read it. We're always redefining stuff. We're never satisfied. That's something that doesn't stop changing. Our redefinition of things. And the truth is that now we just don't know what man is supposed to be. What is, what is a man? What is a man supposed to be? What is a woman supposed to be? Well, he's supposed to be like God. Man and woman were created in the image of God. We're supposed to be like, and we were created for that. If I take this computer and I use it uh, as a hammer, I'm going to be very disappointed in its usefulness as a hammer because it's going to break. And the computer's not going to be too happy about it either. But when I use it for the purpose that it was created, the computer is happy and it will work for many years if I take care of it. Likewise, sometimes people wonder, why are they depressed? Why do they feel so unsatisfied with life? Why am I so bitter? Why am I so angry? What's going on with me? And we try to fix it. We think we're smart enough to fix it. We read books, self-help psychology books. We see psychiatrists, go to doctors. We go to universities thinking that maybe Knowledge, more knowledge. We got to get more knowledge. Well, what has knowledge helped us so far? How? How has knowledge helped us so far? It hasn't. If knowledge had been of help, we, we should have been a society that would have long time ago done away with oppression and bullying and all these other ills that still affect us. Prejudice, racism. But man, that is as alive as ever it was. Knowledge isn't helping. Politics isn't helping. It's because we took God out of our minds and out of our hearts. And when you take God out, chaos comes in. When you take the light out, darkness comes in. There is no other way to replace it. We were made in the image of God, and Jesus came to remind us of that. Jesus came bearing that image, to speak unequivocally that without him there is no light, there is no life, there is no love. 
And if you want to get to the Father, you got to come through me. And he gave his life on the cross and died and came to life. Just in case anybody had doubts. That, has, that had never happened before. And that's what the Gospels portray. Jesus is trying to bring us back to light. That's what the Hebrew author captures here. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God is the one who sustains us right now. His providence sustains us. It's sustaining this world. Think about, think, think back to Ezekiel, which we read not too long ago. When God's glory departs the temple, such a sad occasion for Israel. But they didn't even know it was happening. Only Ezekiel was blessed with the insight to actually see physically God leaving the temple. And to think that God left so late, that gives us some hope. He tolerated all that evil, all that darkness, done right in the middle of the place that was supposed to declare light. How sad his spirit must have been through all that, enduring that, until the point where he said, that is enough. I am leaving. And Ezekiel wrote that for us to remember when God departed his temple. But thank God he didn't leave for good. Because he came now in person. He didn't send an angel, as the Hebrew author says, but he himself came to give us that lasting message. And so Christ, as the image of God, the representation of what God designs us to be, Jesus is that humankind 2.0, what humans ought to be. And that is what we as Christians embody. We are to show humanity what the new humanity looks like. We are humankind 2.0. The church is society 2.0. The one that is going to actually outlast. Why? Because we fully embrace God. Because we fully embrace the Savior. And that's why we will last. Because the moment we decide to leave that, we won't last at all. And as the Hebrew author says here, encouraging us, let us throw off the things that hinder, the sin that so easily entangles, the creeping influence of darkness that constantly tries to get our attention. We got to let go of it. We have to be very zealous about letting those things go so that we can run, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the goal, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. And so more than ever now, because of all the pressures of society and the influences, we need to make up our minds about letting go of the darkness that is always trying to entrap us in running with perseverance. It is through Christ that we're given the power to become like God once more. And the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, all these things that we're going to read about in the gospel, is cast in terms of its power to transform and renew us so that once again we can become the light of the image of Christ as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And once again be people full of purpose, zealous to do good works because we understand who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. 
And there's nothing that is more fulfilling and more joyful than that. That's why Jesus says here, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge that person. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. And so Jesus came to give us also a very dire warning. He says, I came not to judge, but to give you life, to save you. But there is a time, the window is fastly approaching, when that window will be closed, just like the door was closed on Noah's Ark. It was open for some time to let the people come in. But once the water started to rise and started to rain, the door was closed. And that is the gospel that now we continue to proclaim as the apostles did. That Jesus came to atone for our sins, that he was sacrificed for us because it was only his blood lived in purity. Only the blood of one so pure was going to be able to pay for all the sins, for all the darkness, for all the chaos that we brought into the world and into our lives. God is all about redoing. God is all about starting fresh. God is all about second chances. And if anything, this appearance of the Messiah was to emphasize that, that we all have a second chance of rebirth, of doing it again. And the awesome thing for the Christian is that every day is full of new mercies. And every day we can decide to continue walking in that path, fixing our eyes on Jesus because he was raised for our justification as Romans 4 25 says we we don't have it in us to justify ourselves before God but we have one that is greater than that so our confidence is greater because he justified us so as long as I walk in his steps I'm good as long as I don't revert back to the things that bring darkness and chaos into my life and the step to begin the way that we start that and to show Jesus in our life is by embracing that message of newness. But in order to be new, you got to let go of the old. In order to bring in the new life, you have to die to the old life. In order for Christ to be raised again from the dead, to bring us forgiveness, he had to die in the flesh. And that's really the message of the gospel, that there has to be a death. So if we want to embrace this, we have to look at that cross. That's why Jesus says, if you don't carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. We now live a life of death to self so that life can be in us. We choose death as Jesus did voluntarily so that his life can be evidenced now in our life. And that's the message that we preach. That's the message as Romans 6, 3 and 4 says that brings about the newness of life. That when we imitate Jesus in his death being baptized, that means being buried underwater, as Jesus was buried in the, in the grave, just like he was raised, we also will be raised to newness of life. So I'll leave you with these words from Matthew. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Keep preaching that gospel, brothers and sisters. Have a good afternoon.
thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.